ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. The Goldman Sachs future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week with seriously three of my favorite people in ETFs. Joining me will be Laura Krieger, managing editor of ETF Trends, also our resident crypto ETF expert. And last week, there were several noteworthy happenings in this space. We saw the first quote unquote NFT ETF come to market, a non fungible token themed ETF. We also saw a very interesting move by Grayscale to try and bolster their case for a spot Bitcoin ETF. This actually involved having their attorneys send a letter to the SEC. I can't wait to see how uh, Gary Gensler and staff react to that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they might send a nasty gram back to Grayscale. We'll see. But also last week, the SEC did shoot down yet another spot Bitcoin ETF filing. Uh, this one was from Wisdom Tree. At the same time, up in Canada, Fidelity launched a spot Bitcoin ETF. So there's a lot going on right now. Laura and I will dive into all of this. And that'll also include looking at the blockchain ETF space. I can tell you right now, we have zero chance of getting through all that in, uh, in 15 to 20 minutes. Nevertheless, I'll then be joined by the one and only Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA, leading investment research firm. And of course, we're now into December, so I'm going to have Todd give us his top ETF stories this year. I also want to get his take on the record ETF flows we've seen. And then I'm looking forward to this. We're going to get Todd's guaranteed Stone Cold Lock ETF predictions for 2022. You get to hear them first right here on ETF Prime. And I'll tell you, depending upon what these are, I honestly have no idea what he's going to serve up, but depending upon what they are, I may have to play some friendly wagers with him. That just seems to work out well for some other ETF nerds. So we'll see what Todd has for us. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by a true ETF entrepreneur, Perth Toll, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. She's going to spotlight the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, ticker FRDM, Freedom. This actually recently crossed over $100 million in assets. It's a fantastic story and also really interesting timing with this ETF given the news flow out of China. So if you look, Freedom currently has zero exposure to China. The country simply doesn't meet the criteria to be included in purse, uh, purse ETF. But obviously, China is the world's second largest economy. So excluding this country from an emerging markets ETF, obviously, that's a big difference from the popular broad-based emerging market ETFs out there. And I know this is a topic Perth is very passionate about, so we'll definitely have a, a healthy conversation around that. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. 
Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for joining me this week. Always glad to be here. All right, so we are going to go around the horn on a number of crypto ETF-related topics. And I guess let's start with this launch last week, the Defiance Digital Revolution ETF, ticker NFTZ. NFTs, uh, pretty good ticker. I'll give that one an 8 out of 10. But (laughs) this uh, ETF seeks to own, quote, equity securities of global publicly listed companies with relevant thematic exposure to the NFT, blockchain, and cryptocurrency ecosystems. What did you think about this one? What was your knee-jerk reaction? Well, you know, I love to see a smaller issuer, an independent issuer, uh, you know, making a name for themselves. And Defiant certainly has done that over the years that they've been on the market. But as best as I can tell, you know, I dug into the uh, the prospectus a little bit. And as best as I can tell, uh, NFTZ is basically a blockchain ETF like any other. You know, it's holding crypto miners, crypto mining equipment manufacturers, crypto exchanges, the same sort of lineup you'd find in Uh, many of the other ETFs. What makes this specifically NFT related is that Defiance is defining their eligible universe by using public filings and public uh, reports and info like that to determine whether the company is involved in NFTs to any extent. So um, they're looking for, you know, companies that might have mentioned uh, NFTs in their media or in their earnings reports or so on. The thing is, though, I mean, even in the prospectus, Defiance notes that NFTs are an emerging technology and they say outright that any indication of involvement in NFTs should basically be taken with a grain of salt, right? Because this is still a very, very tiny fraction of the overall crypto market, crypto equity space. And it's going to be NFT related business is going to be a small driver of the risk return profile of this entire fund, right? That said, if you're looking for, you know, early access to to NFTs, this is the way to do it. But, you know, I would caution if folks are looking at this fund, uh, I would caution that they take a a good hard look under the hood. Make sure, uh, you know, if you're already using blockchain ETFs or digital assets ETFs or whatever we want to call it, uh, you make sure you're not doubling too much on your exposure, right? Because there's a lot of overlapping holdings, not just between NFTZ uh, and the existing ETFs in the space, but just generally speaking, among blockchain ETFs, there's a lot of overlap. Um, these are highly concentrated ETFs with very small baskets. DAP has 26 companies in its portfolio. BitQ is 29. Block is 44. There's about a 50. I checked the numbers. There's about a 54% crossover between um, BitQ and DAP, and and 37% between Block and DAP. So y- y- you have to. Um, you know, be careful that what you're buying is differentiated enough to give you something not only that is what you're expecting, but is also differentiated and unique. And I mean, I think there's a a case to be made for some of the blockchain ETFs out there that they are differentiated and unique, but just make sure that you're not loading up too much on Silvergate or Coinbase or whatever the, the crypto equity du jour it might be. I think that's all perfectly said. I'll just add that I, I think one of the biggest issues here, if I can use the word issue, is it's just so early in the space, right? There, there just simply aren't that yeah. many pure play NFT companies to build an ETF around. Now, there are certainly publicly traded crypto miners. There are exchanges like Coinbase, even companies like uh, MicroStrategy, who own a bunch of Bitcoin. But once you start getting past those companies, there's just not a lot out there. And I would say especially so for the NFT space. So I agree with what you're saying that I do think it will be difficult for NFTs to differentiate from the other blockchain ETFs out there. And and even among the blockchain ETFs out there, and we can talk about that, just them trying to differentiate from each other is a little bit of a challenge. There are just so many blockchain <laughs> ETFs out on the market right now. I, I guess that brings up a, a good question. I mean, how many of these types of ETFs do you think the market can actually support? That's a very good question because we have something like 13 blockchain 
digital assets, again, whatever we want to call the, the ETFs out there. We have 13 of those ETFs out there now. There's about 2.4 billion in assets across those funds, more than half of which is in one fund, Block. That was the first mover to the space. And if I recall, it was the first mover by a single day. So I think that sort of tells you something about uh, the not just the popularity of the theme, right? Every ETF uh, issuer out there wants to have their own take of the blockchain theme, but it also tells you maybe how much uh, room there is out there, how much how much pent up demand that there's, you know, a ton of these smaller, I mean, there's a ton of blockchain ETFs, but many of them haven't even crossed 100 million in assets. And that's sort of the, the break even point uh, for many ETFs. That's, you know, the rule of thumb uh, for many ETF issuers is that you got to hit 100 million to make it worth the while. Very few of them have done that so far. So I can't really see too many more funds in the blockchain space breaking even the billion dollar barrier that Block has, unless they're adding something truly unique uh, to that space, uh, something differentiated. So maybe some of them still have that potential, but who knows? And that's not even including, you know, the the filings that are out there or the funds that uh, use Bitcoin futures or the funds that have Bit, uh, you know blockchain exposure as part of a, a general disruptive innovation exposure theme and so on. I mean, it's it's everywhere. By the way, I love some of the names of these products. So Block, B-L-O-K, which you've mentioned, that's the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF. Uh, you, you look at some of these other ones, the Siren NASDAQ Next Gen Economy ETF, that's ticker BLCN. You have the First Trust Index Innovative Transaction and Process ETF, ticker LEGR Ledger. Uh, the Global X Blockchain ETF, that, that one's straightforward. Uh, I think that's getting the message across uh, the, the way they want. I mean, to be fair, a lot of those old, you know, the, the first three that you mentioned, those are older funds. And the SEC was a lot less okay with using anything related to Bitcoin or blockchain or, or any of that sort of stuff in the um the name of a fund several years ago. So Block and BLK, they all had to to do some uh, creative naming, let's say, to get to market. Okay, I agree with that. But I think launching either today or tomorrow is the Valkyrie Innovative Balance Sheet ETF, ticker VIB, which I believe is going to hold uh, companies like MicroStrategy that have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. But I, I agree. I know that a lot of those names were... Uh, you know, due to the way the SEC was approaching the space a few years ago, which I, I guess that brings up another question, which is, do you think we would have seen this proliferation of blockchain ETFs if the SEC had just approved a spot Bitcoin ETF? Let's say earlier this year, if they had done that, do you think all of these blockchain ETFs would exist? Oh, goodness. That's a tough question to answer. And it is speculative, right? Because the SEC didn't, uh, you know, approve a spot ETF. They have no indication that they're going to change their mind on that anytime soon. But, you know, I think there is a case to be made and a very good case to be made for investing in crypto equities rather than investing in the uh, the crypto asset, whatever it might be, directly, whether it's through futures or spot or whatever. Um, you know, you it, it's the same case that you could make uh, for commodity Futures versus commodity equities, right? They're, they're two different uh, investment cases there. You're still playing a commodity uh, concept or, or investment um, use case, right? But with the uh, commodities equities, you're playing um, you know, expectations about production and uh, you know, how it ties and demand and how it all ties into uh, the greater equity markets. Well, it's the same thing with crypto. Right. So with crypto equities, it's it's a less direct, uh, you know, less direct exposure, perhaps. Uh, however, you are still getting exposure to that crypto theme um, while also getting, you know, the, the equity exposure that you kind of we've all come to love and trust. Right. So you, it, it looks like an equity. It smells like an equity, walks like an equity, talks like an equity. So it, it's. I think something easier to wrap our heads around and wrap our um, you know, understanding around and to fold it into an existing portfolio allocation. 
It's just my my two cents on that. Okay, so you said there could be a case for investing in crypto equities versus, say, uh, spot Bitcoin or, or spot crypto. This is actually a good pivot point for us because I want to ask you about this interview you published last week with ProShare Simeon Hyman on their Bitcoin strategy ETF, ticker BITO, which uh, that ETF, interestingly, after breaking GLD's record of being the fastest ETF to a billion dollars, it really hasn't done much since then in terms of flows. And you can feel free to comment on that if you like. But what I found interesting from your interview on this similar theme to what you mentioned with crypto equities was Simeon really mounted an argument that Bitcoin futures ETFs actually have several advantages over spot ETFs. Now, I, I know it's his job to talk his book, but as I look through this, these arguments were pretty compelling and they do run counter to the mainstream narrative around contango and roll costs and whatnot. I'm curious, did that stand out to you as well? I thought Simeon was pretty pointed here. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think uh, there has been a lot of negative focus for or, uh, you know, attention on the potential drawbacks of, of futures ETFs, which are true for any futures ETF, I would point out, whether it's about Bitcoin futures or commodity oil futures or gold futures or any sort of commodity futures, uh, they all have to deal with contango and position limits and so on and so forth. But Simeon brought up the fact that, well, he brought up two, two big, big arguments in favor of Bitcoin futures over a spot Bitcoin exposure. One was that Bitcoin futures are actually more liquid than a spot, uh, you know, a spot exposure might be. Bitcoin futures trade more volume on the CME than the, you know, the largest U.S. Bitcoin exchange sees on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, that's that's an interesting point because institutions, um, you know, they're, they're and, and big investors, they're looking for liquidity. They need that liquidity. Institutions can use the futures in a way that they can't necessarily use, a, you know, a Gemini or a Kraken account, right? Not at least not in scale, because there's the regulations from the institution's compliance department and due diligence teams and all the infrastructure that goes along with institutional ownership, uh, you know, that, that, that goes into making those uh, choices before they can invest. Futures are a known quantity. They're a solved quantity in terms of regulation, how to regulate futures, how to trade futures. Again, these are all solved problems. Uh, that liquidity uh, is there in the marketplace and the ease of use and accessibility. The other thing that Simeon brought up that I find is really interesting is that it's extremely hard to manipulate the futures market. And that's something, you know, the SEC has been just obsessed with. Uh, you know, the futures contract itself, uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll step in just for a second. The futures contract itself is actually not based on one price, but it's based off of five prices. The prices off the five largest, most highest volume uh, crypto exchanges. And not only that, those prices are taken over an hour-long interval and they're averaged together. So let's say I'm, I'm a manipulator. I want to change the, the price of Bitcoin in the market. I might be able to manipulate the price on, let's say, Kraken for a few seconds. I might even be able to do it for, for 15 minutes, right? But I'd have to be able to sustain that manipulated price for a whole hour. And I'd have to sustain it over five separate exchanges and not get caught while doing it. Uh, not have it shut down by the exchange or by anybody else for that price to show up uh, significantly in a significant way in the, in the futures price calculation. So, um, you know, the SEC, Gary Gensler, has been very clear and very vocal about how much it matters to the SEC to prevent manipulation in the markets and to make sure that investors are protected in that way. Well, this is a pretty, pretty good way to prevent to uh, at least mitigate uh, the attempts at manipulation in the market. Well, and I think the other big uh, point here is that you don't have to worry about Bitcoin custody or getting right. hacked. And right. I, I do think that that played a role in getting Gensler more comfortable with uh, with Bitcoin futures. And by the way, for listeners, uh, highly recommend reading this full interview that Laura did with Simeon. It's at uh, ETFtrends.com right now. Um, Laura, just a few minutes left before I let you go. I have to ask you about this letter from Grayscale that I, I mentioned at the top. I got a big kick out of this, if you can't tell. So a few weeks ago, the SEC rejected VanEck spot Bitcoin ETF application. Uh, last week, they rejected Wisdom Tree spot Bitcoin uh, ETF application. And the bottom line is, 
it looks like they're pretty well dug in in that they want to see a better regulatory framework in place for crypto exchanges before they even consider entertaining a spot ETF. However, last week we did get this very interesting, I guess I would call it an end around from Grayscale. And I'll try to just offer the gist here, which is they sent a letter to the SEC where they're arguing that the approval of futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, but not spot-based ETFs, is a violation of what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, APA. They said the SEC's actions are, quote, arbitrary and capricious. And basically that if the SEC approved Bitcoin futures ETFs, then they should approve spot ETFs as well. And, you know, the, the main thing here is that they're saying the SEC has to treat like situations alike unless they have a good reason not to. And they're saying that futures-based Bitcoin ETFs and spot-based uh, Bitcoin ETFs are like situations. They should be treated the same. What did you think of this approach? Like, do you think this can move the needle at all? Or do you think Gensler got this thing and just ripped it up? <laughs> I, I love the uh, creativity of this approach. And, uh, you know, I think it's really interesting that they pointed out the uh, Administrative Procedure Act, right? Because, uh, you know, that's a, a clause that's actually being cited in a number of lawsuits against, um, you know, or at least has been cited in a number of lawsuits against uh, various government agencies over the past, uh, you know, four years. Um, and and so to see it applied in this potential uh, application, it was, just, it was just really interesting. So, um, you know, the letter says, and here's what I think is very interesting about it. It says that um, Graystill argued the SEC hadn't defined what, quote, a market of significant size was. And I think that's honestly kind of a fair assertion, right? So the the SEC says that uh, the, you know, to, to be able to approve a Bitcoin ETF, they have to prove that the market or the, um, the issuer in the exchange would have to approve that the market, uh, the underlying market is, got enough liquidity and got enough uh, significant size to be, um, you know, fair and worth worth trading and so on. So if if this letter moves the needle at all, um, I think it might be to get the SEC to define their terms, their their uh, desires, uh, desired terms a little bit better. Maybe they might actually say, OK, this is what we mean by significant size. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it points out that the Bitcoin futures ETFs were only approved because exchanges didn't have to go through the 19D4 process, which is kind of a special case process to get uh, ETFs listed. They could just use instead with the futures ETFs, because like I said before, futures are a known solved quantity. They could use generic listing standards, um, you know, just the general like everyday process to get these funds listed instead of the, the special case 19B4 um, you know, that, that was a little bit of an unfair, you know, treatment. So is this letter going to move the needle? Eh, I don't know. I, I kind of agree with what you said at the top about how what we'll likely see is a bit of um, a nasty gram back from the SEC explaining their thought process and so on. But, um, you know, I think maybe we might get a little bit more clarity around what some of these specific terms that the SEC is looking for. Uh, what they mean, then again, they may not want to be, you know, because the the Gensler SEC is so firmly entrenched and has been very vocal against their desire of, you know, or, or vocal in their desire to not see a spot Bitcoin ETF. They've shot it down whenever they got the chance. Maybe they just don't want to encourage people to like get more false hope. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what happens, if anything. Um, only time is really going to tell on that front. The, the challenge that I have here is just that I feel like if someone manipulates the spot Bitcoin ETF or the spot Bitcoin market, I think that that would impact the futures market as well. And to what you were saying, you know, the SEC is denying spot Bitcoin ETFs by saying the CME Bitcoin futures market isn't big enough. But then you look, they just approved Bitcoin futures ETFs, which hold CME Bitcoin futures. And that just seems incongruent to me. But I, I think to your overall point, yeah. the, the SEC is just so dug in here, right? And I'm sure you saw this. Fidelity launched the spot Bitcoin ETF in Canada last week. And uh, I, I thought the comments Gensler made, somebody asked him, you know, does that change his view, what other countries are doing? And he said he doesn't care about that. And, and actually, let me read these. He said, quote, as fellow regulators, our staff seeks to learn from the experiences of others 
actions in other jurisdictions are not binding on U.S. regulators, and our staff continues to follow applicable legal standards and processes under the federal securities laws. I just got to tell you, as I read that, the translation to me is no Bitcoin ETF until like the year 2040. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's not. But then again, he's also, you know, no U.S. regulator is going to say, yeah, we're taking our cues from what Canada is doing like that. That's I, I wouldn't have expected him to answer in any other way. I don't disagree. Well, Laura, always fun uh, chatting crypto and ETFs. No shortage of topics for us. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. The universe of publicly traded pure play digital transformation and blockchain companies has grown significantly in both size and revenues over the last few years. Access the company's driving blockchain innovation with the Vanek Digital Transformation ETF, ticker DAPP, your link to the blockchain. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. And investors should consider the fund's objective, risk, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a prospectus, call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. I'm now joined by Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA, a leading independent provider of investment research and analysis. I would say few, if any, cover the ETF space as closely or as well as Todd. He's just a, a tremendous industry resource, and he's now on the line with me from New York. Todd, great having you back on the podcast. Great to be with you, Nate. Thanks for having me. All right. I have to start by asking you on a scale from one to 10, how excited are you to have Michigan in the college football playoffs? Had a big win against Ohio State. Uh, finally, follow that up with a, uh, a Big Ten title. How excited are you? On a scale of one to 10, I would go with what's 100, maybe? <laughs> big, you know, uh, big victory for us. I'm a, I'm a Michigan alum. I met my wife in Michigan. My son is a diehard fan as well. We, we had a, a good weekend a weekend ago gravy when they win the Big Ten Championship, and now I, I guess I now know what my New Year's Eve plans are, is to watch a football game, uh, which is not, you know, not a bad way to spend, spend that holiday. So we're, thank you. We're going to do uh, some ETF predictions for 2022 here in a bit. You have a prediction for the college football playoffs for Michigan. Can they uh, compete with these SEC teams? Well, I think they can compete with them. I think they can stay. I think they, I think they can win these games, uh, you know, the next two games. Uh, there's some good schools. Uh, I'm not going to predict that they're going to win. Uh, everything at this point is, is gravy to me. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right, so look, we're now into December. The year is winding down, which i got to tell you is hard to believe. I feel like 2021 has been the exact opposite of last year when, for me, time just seemed to stand still. Probably a lot of people felt that way. I, I feel like 2020, it, it was like a decade's worth of time. But anyways, here we are. And so you and I are going to do a quick recap of uh, ETFs in 2021. And then, as I mentioned, I do want to look ahead to 2022. Let's first start with ETF flows, though. Uh, you wrote a nice piece last week on how ETFs have already gathered uh, some $800 billion this year, which that just obliterates last year's record of $504 billion. Give us a little color here. Like, what do you think have been some of the key drivers? Uh, obviously, the markets help, but what else have been catalysts? And is there anything else catching your attention? I think this is what's impressive to us at CFRA is how broad this has been. So the, the top seven asset managers have not only exceeded the flows uh, through November, uh, as they got all of last year, but in some cases, Invesco doubled the inflows, Schwab doubled the inflows, State Street nearly doubled the inflows, Global X, which is just outside of the top 10, tripled the net inflows, and you know, BlackRock and, and Vanguard continued to pull in the, the lion's share of the assets. So I think this is broad based. This hasn't been one firm that's been dominating. Uh, you know, two quick nuggets of, of, of data. Uh, global equity ETFs, those that invest in either U.S. and international stocks or just in international stocks, the net inflows have nearly tripled to $195 billion. Uh, so again, people were not investing in these international equity products in, in 2020, and that's been a heavy lifting. And then the complete polar opposite, you know, inflation-protected bond ETFs. I know you've been talking about that uh, with prior guests. Have, have, have tripled to almost 40 
billion. This is a very small segment of the ETF market. So the ETF industry has products to fit whatever way investors want to go. And in, in 2021, uh, they wanted to go in many different directions. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting uh, for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Well, I tweeted this out. You may have seen this. Uh, State Street's Matt Bartolini, he noted that if inflows end up exceeding $841 billion this year, that would actually top the best 24-month calendar period combined inflows for ETFs, best two-year calendar period, which is pretty remarkable. But, Todd, I guess going back to underlying drivers, I mean, is it that simple just that investors – are demanding the ETF structure, and so issuers are meeting there, meeting them there. I mean, or, or is there anything else to it? Again, I mentioned clearly the market environment is, is providing a, a huge tailwind here. I mean, stocks are up big this year, but I mean, is there anything else you would point to is, is driving this sort of demand? It's just ongoing acceptance. So we've seen you know retail and advisors that have been embracing ETFs. We've seen institutional investors that are using it for both short-term liquidity purposes and then long-term tactical purposes, you know, and ETFs continue to demonstrate the advantages over mutual funds, particularly with tax efficiency. That's been an area that has, you know, we've long talked about. I know you've had prior guests that talked about what might happen if the laws uh, or the laws change. That hasn't happened, and ETFs continue to gather assets and, and continue to stand out relative to mutual funds. Let's talk a little bit more about tax efficiency. So as you were alluding to, obviously, Senator Ron Wyden, he had this draft proposal a few months ago that that did get a lot of attention. He was trying to close the uh, quote-unquote ETF tax loophole, which I'm not sure if that's going to be one of your ETF stories of the year, but it definitely doesn't look like that's going anywhere, at least for the time being. But talk more about the role of ETF tax efficiency and uh, how things are shaping up here in December with ETF and mutual fund capital gain distributions. I know you've had a couple of research notes recently uh, on this. Right. So well, maybe let's start on the mutual fund side and then uh, touch on ETFs. So there's there's been over 600 mutual funds that have announced that they're going to have capital gains that are more than 10% of the net asset value of the portfolio by, by the end of the year. That's 620, to be exact, uh, is more than 2019 and 2020 combined. It's double what we've seen in, in recent years. And that's happening in part because we've had a strong equity market and we've seen $350 billion of domestic equity mutual fund outflows. This is using ICI data. Uh, through late November, $350 billion of money coming out in an up market when mutual fund managers need to meet redemptions, they need to sell. When they sell, that passes on taxable events to the rest of the shareholders. I'm sure as listeners know, that is not what happens with ETFs. One, equity ETFs have been seeing net inflows, not outflows, but the net inflows uh, that creation and redemption process, you buying, Nate, uh, whatever ETF you're buying, if I happen to own it, doesn't impact me whatsoever. And when you decide to sell, it doesn't impact me whatsoever. Most of that trading is taking place in the secondary market. There's lots of nuts and bolts behind the scenes that make ETFs more tax efficient. And that's just that's not only driving money into ETFs, but that's also driving money uh, or assets into the ETF market as conversions happen. And perhaps we'll get to that. That will be one of my big stories for the year. But we're seeing asset managers decide it's just better to offer an ETF strategy instead of sticking with the mutual fund one. Well, you had a great stat a couple of weeks ago that an estimated 98% of equity ETFs offered by iShares, State Street, and Vanguard, so the top three ETF issuers, will pass along zero capital gains distributions to, to shareholders in 2021. Now, that's the same as 2020, but that's a remarkable stat when you think about it. When you think about the assets in those three issuers' products and just the number of, of, of share products that are out there, 98% of equity ETFs. Um, okay, so let, let's get to a, a, a quick recap here of 2021. Let's put record flows aside. Obviously, a lot's happened this year. Give me your top two or three stories from, from this year. Again, no shortage of things to choose from, but if you had to narrow down to, to just a few, what would be at the top of your list? So I'll, uh, it isn't the top one, but I'll just stick with it since I alluded to it. Conversions uh, of mutual funds to ETFs, I think, is, you know, dimensional funds has been leading 
the charge on it. They weren't first. Guinness Atkinson was, but we've seen, uh, you know, nearly uh, a couple of dozen of these products that either have announced that they're converting or converting existing assets from mutual funds into ETFs. Now, we at CFRA consider that net inflows. That's part of that $800 billion that we talked about. This is net new money going in to the ETF structure and is a sign that asset managers are more than just dipping their toe into the ETF market. They, they are changing course and, and bringing shareholders along with them. And I think that we're going to see more of that. It isn't going to be for every fund. It doesn't make sense given the shareholder base. But I think that's a key milestone uh, of you know a large firm like Dimensional Funds. You were on CNBC talking about that yesterday, uh, so I won't steal your quote uh, from you, but they were a big player in the mutual fund space. They now are a big player in the ETF space, too, due to conversions. Well, I'll just add to that in terms of asset managers getting involved in ETFs. I agree. Mutual fund to ETF conversions, that's a big one. We'll continue to see more of those. I think the biggest hurdle there is just the these big mutual funds that are used in retirement plans and 401ks. Obviously, the conversion uh, process there is going to be a little trickier just because ETFs haven't been fully adopted in, in 401k platforms. But the, the two other avenues that stand out to me are uh, RIAs, registered investment advisory firms, offering their proprietary strategies uh, in, in an ETF wrapper. We saw uh, Ross Gerber do that this year, Colin Roche. There's been right. there's been others. I think that's a really unique avenue for um, generating additional ETF assets. And then the other one is separately managed accounts, SMAs converting to ETFs. The big one that stands out there to me this year is Cabana. Uh, they've had a lot yeah. of success with this. So uh, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think these other two avenues as well, these offer paths for, uh, again, asset managers to bring their strategies to market. Uh, agreed. And I guess I'll, I'll piggyback off of both your comments. And, and yes, those are, those are key players within the space. And then Capital Group, I guess this is you know, they're going to be in 2022, but their announcement in 2021 and revealing more about their plans. This is the heavyweight within the actively managed mutual fund world that will be launching uh, capital group ETFs. They, they, of course, have the American funds, mutual funds suite of products. They're going to be offering, uh, I think, half a dozen products overall, fully transparent. You know, I know we've batted around semi-transparent and fully transparent products and the value or the differences between them. Uh, but the, these capital group products will be able to invest in international stocks, not just U.S. ones. And that's key. They are going to be a player to watch in 2022, given the scale that they have, given their uh, strong relationships with advisors. Uh, it, it's going to be a big, a big story to watch in, in 2022. And I want to talk more about uh, 2022 here in a moment. Any other stories you would highlight from this year besides the mutual fund to uh, ETF conversions? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't if I didn't let you uh, tell me why Bitcoin ETFs, uh, which was a, you know, the fact that we have our first one after eight years, um, and that I was less optimistic about the timing of this, and and, and oh, Eric Balchunas uh, a stake as a result of it. You <laughs> don't have to eat a dollar as a result of it. You know, ProShares uh, making it in with with the first Bitcoin. Futures, nonetheless, ETF, but still first Bitcoin-related product, is a key milestone. And obviously, it, it gathered assets faster than any other product organically in two days, gathered a billion dollars. That's it, It's a key story. It just happens to be a one unique product story, or I guess three now uh, total products. But that's that's a story of 2021 that, that we'll be talking about uh decades in the future. No, I agree. I mean, that for me is probably the ETF story of the year. I need to put some additional thought into it, but that one, it just seems hard for something else to supplant it. I, th I think we hit on really the three biggest uh, stories here, which are, again, the record flows. I think you're right with the mutual fund ETF conversions and then just certainly this entire story around Bitcoin ETFs, Bitcoin futures ETFs. Uh, it's, again, hard to knock that one off the top of the list. All right, let's look ahead to 2022. Uh, I'm going to be doing this over the next several weeks with a, a number of, uh, of, of our colleagues from across the industry. You get first crack here. Give us a few 2022 ETF predictions. So we, we published uh, three trends to watch for 2022. I guess that's a version of predictions. Uh, and I'll name the three of them, and then we can go into them as, as much time as you allow me to. So we talk about actively managed ETFs. We think that including 
conversions, we will see actively managed equity ETFs be 10% of the net inflows for that broader category. Uh, they were about 7%. Again, if you include conversions, they're roughly 2% of the asset base. But we think capital groups success, are likely success. We think what we're seeing from other firms that already have a presence, like J.P. Morgan, uh, among others in the active equity space. And we think that investors are going to double down on ARC products that have struggled in 2021. They're going to believe that, that next year will be different, and they'll put more money in seeing the opportunity heading into 2022. So I think active equity ETFs is going to be a key story to watch in, in 2022, and we think they're going to gather more assets next year than they did this year. Talk just a little bit more about uh, – yeah, real quick, just talk a little bit more about ARC. That, that one's interesting to me. Obviously, this year has been challenging for him from a performance standpoint. You know, I think investors have remained loyal overall. They have had some outflows. And, and I'll just say from my perspective, I don't think there should be any big surprise after the unbelievable performance they put up last year. You can't expect them to do that every year. And if you have ETFs returning, say, 150% in a year, well, guess what? They can underperform the S&P. They can go down you know, 30% or 40%. I don't think that's any big surprise. However, uh, I do think ARK investors, they're being tested a little bit here, especially ones who maybe came on late. If you look at the flows, a lot of the flows came into these products in you know December of last year, the first part of this year. And so those investors haven't had the same type of experience as, say, an ARK investor who uh, was involved in January of 2020. Now, I think uh, here tomorrow or Thursday, ARC has this transparency ETF launching, which interestingly, uh, that, that's index-based and not active. But why do you think Kathy Wood and, and, and ARC can sort of continue this success next year uh, after the year they've had this year? And I don't disagree so, with you, uh, by the way. I'm just curious yeah. what, what you think are some of the reasons for that. Right. So we, I'm not predict or predicting that ARC bounces back and has a better year in 2022. That, I guess, is to be determined. We, you know, we have ratings on ETFs. We have, a, for example, a two-star rating on ARKK that's going forward for the next nine months. We think it's going to underperform. But we think investors have been loyal, maybe to a fault, but they've been loyal to the strategy based in part on past performance and their long-term thematic approach, they being investors as well as ARC. And there's two things you can do, obviously. You can you can decide to, to walk away from the table uh, or you can double down uh, when, when there's losses incurred. The people, or not to generalize, but some of the people who are, who are betting on Kathy Wood and team are likely to stay with it and use new proceeds to see this as a buying opportunity for them. And so I think it's going to help the active equity category, but I think there's other asset managers that are going to drive even more flows than ARC does in 2022. All right, just briefly here, you mentioned three trends uh, overall. What are the other two? Yeah, so let me let me name them first, and then you'll see how much time you have. I know you have another guest coming up. So thematic ETFs, which is roughly 6% of the flows that we saw in, in 2022. We saw actually tremendous growth in the flows for thematic ETFs. Uh, despite the fact that technology was out of favor, the uh, cloud computing, cybersecurity, some of those themes that resonated very strongly during the pandemic as it was heating up. As we saw EV products, uh, we saw infrastructure development products. We think investors are con- going to continue to put money into these products, but pivot, whether that's to uh, cannabis-related ETFs, that's a theme to watch in, perhaps in 2022, whether that's to blockchain and, and, and broader digital assets, uh, to clean energy. Uh, there's, there's so many different choices that are out there that I think investors will find uh, the one they want in the ETF wrapper, whether or not uh, I know which one that's going to be in advance. And then, you know, this has been a rough couple of years, I guess, on a relative basis. You know, BlackRock has pulled in tremendous money uh, in 2021, and yet their flows have lagged Vanguard for the second consecutive year. We think 2022 that reverses. We've seen some of the leading products to see redemptions this year are iShares products. In fact, 14 of the 20 uh, products with the most outflows thus far uh, have been BlackRock-related products. That's going to reverse itself. You know, we think we're starting to see positive trends uh, for the fixed-income products that are used by institutional investors. 
Uh, and we think BlackRock re- recaptures its flows crown as if there's one for you and I to hand out to them. But we think it's going to be a big year for BlackRock in 2022. Interesting. So you think that they will start to re- reverse some of that market share slippage they've had in recent years to Vanguard? Yes, we, we do. I mean, so they've had a tremendous year. You know, their assets or the net inflows are up one and a half times what we saw in 2020 uh, thus far in 2021. But we just think they're going to con- we're going to see less bleeding from some of their larger institutionally oriented products in, in 2022 is our prediction. Well, Todd, we'll have to leave it there. Great stuff, uh, as always, this week. Look forward to chatting with you in 2022. Can't wait to see what the ETF industry serves us up. But uh, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks a lot, Nate. Have a good one. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of ETF and mutual fund research at CFRA. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. I'm now joined by Perth Toll, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. She's behind the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, ticker symbol FRDM, great ticker. And this ETF recently hit a big milestone, just past $100 million in assets. And this is the first ETF to take what's called a freedom-weighted approach, which we'll talk about. Uh, Perth is now on the line with me from Houston. Perth, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me again, Nate. How have you been? Uh, obviously, I've been good. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, the ETFs had a great year in terms of investor interest. I'll add that it's also outperformed the broad-based emerging market ETFs that I, I think a lot of investors are familiar with. So congratulations on that. But just talk about how the year's been. Like I said, pretty big milestone hitting $100 million. Yeah, it's been a great year for us. You know, we, uh, we quadrupled our assets, and I think mostly that wasn't because of uh, anything different that we did. We had the strategy since 2019. But because of the parade of government actions in the largest uh, emerging markets like China that have shown investors that there is um, something to investing in a way that respects property rights and uh, economic freedoms, which we use as part of our uh, process. We, we look at both personal and economic freedoms. China has previously been poor uh, scorers on the human freedom side of it. But this year they've shown that they are changing direction as far as the economic freedom as well. And I think that has um, shown itself in the market, and investors have seen that that kind of shareholder value destruction is a risk in emerging markets that perhaps people weren't as aware of before. Well, let's do this. Let's first have you explain the ETF itself. And then I think to your point, there are a lot of different paths we can head down, particularly as it relates to China. Uh, So I mentioned this ETF is freedom weighted. Just explain what that means and then explain what this ETF ends up holding. Sure. So freedom weighting is basically um, giving the freer emerging markets a larger weight, giving the less free emerging markets a, a smaller weight and excluding the worst autocracies and the worst offenders when it comes to personal and economic freedom. We use quantitative uh, metrics from data think tanks like the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute, who compile about 76 different variables um, encompassing both personal and economic freedoms. And so we use the composite score, and we use that for our country weighting and allocations. And then... um, Within each country, we just buy the largest, most liquid securities that are not state-owned enterprises. Can you talk a little bit more about the data behind this ETF? You mentioned where it comes from, but I'm curious, I mean, how reliable is it? Just in the sense that tracking things like human trafficking and and, and freedom of press and, and those sorts of things, I mean, I can see how that could get a little murky. Just talk about the data behind this. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, our data providers, you know, the reason why that they are the world leaders in freedom econometrics is because they use a hundred different think tanks um, in their network to get third-party objective data um, on all of these factors. So they may have um, a think tank that, that looks at corruption. They may have another think tank that looks at, you know, tax burden and business regulations. So there's 76 different ones of these variables within the network, and if there are um, discrepancies, that tends to be canceled out just by fact of there being so many factors alone. Perth, as I was thinking about our conversation today, you know, if I say out loud, freer countries will likely perform better, to me that makes sense intuitively, right? Letting capitalism and freedom do its thing makes a lot of sense. And I would expect that to result in healthier economies and more growth and innovation. But I'm curious, what does the data actually say on this? Like, does the longer term data back that up from a performance perspective? Yeah, so there have been papers on this where they looked at uh, democracy and uh, and freedom and uh, stock market returns and the, the democracies versus the autocracies, and the democracies strongly outperformed autocracies over time. Now, that's not a study that I have um, audited, so I don't know that I would speak to the, the reliability of that paper, but I, it has been one that's recently been sent to me. Um, now, as far as our data providers, they have done work on correlations between freedom and other benefits, such as uh, life expectancy, um, income equality, um, gender equality, uh, you know, uh, GDP growth, and, and per capita income. So all of those things increase with an increase in freedom levels. So there are a lot of benefits to freedom um, besides, you know, stock market benefits that uh, that they have they have found. All right. You can talk more about the specific country allocations uh, if you'd like. But if I compare freedom to some of the largest emerging market ETFs out there, the biggest difference by far is the allocation to China. So freedom has zero exposure, but China is still something like 30 to 40 percent in these other ETFs. It's a really big piece, which makes sense if you simply consider that China is the world's second largest economy. Now, that said, as you were alluding to, we've seen firsthand this year why uh, including China can can be risky. I'd love to have you just talk about those competing forces that on one hand, you are excluding the world's second largest economy, which that does seem like a pretty big bet uh, just from the outside looking in. But on the other hand, your data views this as managing risk. I, I guess it's just such an interesting position to me. Yeah, absolutely, and that's exactly right. Um, China is the biggest differential in our strategy, and it is the largest holding in most other emerging markets indexes. And right now it's about 35% in most uh, emerging markets funds. Um, and at its height, it was between 40 and 45%. Um, that was last August. So it depends on um, the fund you're looking at, but it is a very large concentration risk in a lot of these emerging market strategies. And it is Exhibit A and why freedom is important. And we saw the, uh, the destruction of uh, shareholder value that could occur in a market like this where there is an autocrat in power and you see a lot of government interference in private market activity. So that's a risk that I think uh, most investors can resonate with, and that's why our strategy has resonated so much this year. Whereas, yeah, they have other issues too, like human rights atrocities that are being committed right now. Uh, but I think most investors are less sensitive to that, uh, for better or worse, and, and they're more sensitive to the, the shareholder value destruction. So China, you know, we're not trying to exclude China arbitrarily. This is not an ex-China fund. So it could make it back into the fund at some point if it becomes more free. This is The exclusion is just a natural uh, effect of the freedom waiting. Perth, I don't want to get uh, too far into the political weeds here, but I think it was last week. Uh, Ray Dalio, he was on CNBC, and everyone can go watch his comments if you like. I'll, I'll just say uh, this didn't go well for him. Uh, <laughs> my, my take was that he didn't seem overly concerned with China's human rights track record, uh, with people disappearing and whatnot. And he basically said that he's going to invest and, and make his money wherever he legally can. But I, I've got to tell you, I also think about someone like uh, LeBron James and Nike and how they've approached China, right? There's been a lot of controversy around why they're not standing up to human rights there, but they'll definitely sell shoes and apparel and that kind of stuff. I know Apple is often put in that same category. 
Can you just talk about this uh, conundrum for investors and companies where they seem to want to tap this this huge market that China is, but then they also try to hold themselves out as doing the right things here in the U.S.? I, I guess there just seems to be a lot of hypocrisy to me. Is that frustrating for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's frustrating for a lot of our investors as well and why they come to, to us as a strategy, because in most emerging markets ESG funds, similar to the individuals that you, you just mentioned, um, these funds... Uh, stand up to, to uh, social justice issues uh, here in the United States very loudly and, uh, you know, fearlessly. And, and when it comes to China, they're either silent or complicit. And when you look at these, you know, emerging markets ESG funds, they all have the same exposure to China. So 35% currently at its height, 40 to 45% last year. Um, so, so, yeah, absolutely. In emerging markets with ESG, especially ESG investors, tend not to want to, you know, participate in some of these human rights atrocities that are going on in some of these autocracies. Not only China, but also Saudi Arabia and Russia are in the top ten. Um, so in emerging markets investing especially, um, we see this kind of discrepancy between people that claim to have ESG in their product, but they have yet, you know, 35% in China and additional allocations in the top ten to, to Russia, to Saudi Arabia, which, you know, maybe they're not as ESG as they claim to be. Yeah, and to your point, so you're saying currently the fund does not own uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia, correct? Correct. Okay, and no China. Um, I, I guess looking at emerging markets more broadly speaking, as you know, the common refrain over the past several years has been that valuations are more attractive relative to U.S. stocks, and it's only a matter of time before we start seeing outperformance. But you look overall, it has been a tough go for emerging markets, right? And that's continued this year. There is significant underperformance versus, uh, say, the S&P 500. I'm curious from your perspective, just putting aside this whole China discussion and, and, and what's excluded from the ETF, just taking emerging markets, broadly speaking, what changes this trajectory moving forward? When, when does emerging markets start to outperform? Yeah, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, some say it's, it's because of central bank actions and so forth. I don't know what it's going to take for emerging markets to, to turn and when they're going to turn. Um, I know that for, you know, the past, um, you know, 10 years and plus, that China being a big part of emerging markets indexes has contributed to this underperformance. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of these emerging markets are autocracies and coming out of autocracies, and their governance structures are, you know, a huge... Uh, Kind of drag on the performance, and uh, you know that's why we think it makes sense to freedom weight in emerging markets rather than market cap weight. Because just because you have the biggest market doesn't mean that's where investors have captured the most value. And uh, you know, not to, to use China as uh, Exhibit A again, but in the last 40 years, the MCHI index, which is onshore and offshore shares, um, since 1992 has only uh, had an average annual return of 2.2% a year. And that's during a period of extreme growth in China. So it's extremely difficult for foreign investors to capture value in emerging markets, especially ones that um, don't allow you to capture value, that don't have property rights or shareholder rights, um, and have opaque ownership structures and opaque accounting practices. So we try to avoid those types of emerging markets that tend to drag down uh, the asset class as a whole. And we try to get... Uh, exposure to the ones that have the conditions on the ground for wealth creation and innovation. Um, and that's the freer emerging markets, and that, that's where we want to be. So when you look at the countries and then the companies within those countries that you currently hold within the ETF, what do relative valuations look like? Are they attractive currently from your perspective? The valuations are not significantly different from the uh, benchmark emerging markets indices. Mm -hmm. um, in our perspective, they're just in countries that have the conditions on the ground to uh, encourage growth and incentivize growth. So the valuations are similar currently, which are very low um, compared to, to U.S. and developed markets. Well, I'm very interested to see how uh, things go in 2022. The, for whatever reason, the emerging markets and, and the valuation story is just uh, very interesting to me, uh, I, I just because I've been talking about it for so long. And there, there have been a lot of people that have said, hey, emerging markets are going to turn. And we, we've seen a couple of instances of that over the past decade, but nothing prolonged. So uh, I, I'm definitely interested to watch this story moving forward. But Perth, congratulations on hitting that $100 million uh, milestone with the ETF. I absolutely love seeing your success. Thank you for joining me. 
Thanks, Nate. Appreciate your support all the way uh, since the beginning. So thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Perth Toll, founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. That'll do it for this week's CTF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Shana Orgzik-Sissel, Chief Market Strategist at Strategic Wealth Partners. We're going to talk ETFs and the current market environment and, and ETF due diligence. And then Aberdeen's Robert Minter will cover a very hot topic right now, commodity investing. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.